The word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 44, and verses 24 to 28. I also invite you to hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. One of the more decisive uh, elements that protects us from idolatry, uh, which has uh, been much of the subject matter of our previous study in the book of Isaiah, is that of uh, the opposite of all idols, and that is simply that there's one true God. There's one only true God. And to understand his greatness, his majesty, his perfections, uh, is again, I think, a great hedge of falling prey to the culture in which we live and to all of the various songs that seek to call us away uh, from being loyal to the one true God. And that is much of the text this morning because uh, beginning in verse 24, the Lord will rehearse uh, his perfections uh, before Israel and before the church. Uh, in verses 25 to 27, he will give to us uh, the uniqueness of his word uh, and what the word does. And one of the things that the word is going to do is to call and name uh, Israel's uh, redeemer in terms of a political uh, ruler, namely Cyrus. Uh, in that sense, the word becomes unique because uh, God is crafting the future, and as you might well expect, only God can craft the future. Well, the, the text begins, thus says the Lord. God is speaking. Great application for us as a church, God speaks in his word. We come give attention to his word. And the content of what he speaks uh, in this particular text is a string of 11 participles or verbal adjectives that are descriptive of the greatness of God. Uh, we take away from God's self-description uh, that he is solitary in his perfections. Uh, the initial participles are titles uh, he calls himself to Israel, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. Uh, it's really a title that uh, at Grace Bible Church we give to God. He's redeemed us. He is our Redeemer. No one else can redeem us. Everyone else is disqualified so that the Lord is our sole Redeemer. Uh, as well, he formed us uh, 
fashioned us, crafted us before we were even born. It's a reminder that God has for each of us a purposeful calling. Uh, this notion, uh, for example, is found in Galatians chapter 1 uh, and verse 15 of the Apostle Paul. Uh, very interesting contextually because you and I initially know uh, the Apostle as Saul, who was a great persecutor of the church. But something happens to him. Uh, Galatians 1.15 is something of a hint of that. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's, mother's womb, and called me through his grace. Uh, so before we were even born, God has a purpose for us. He has a purpose for Israel. It's a reminder, of course, that the purposefulness of God regarding our lives is not meritorious at all. If we're meritorious, he would have never called Paul. In fact, he would have never called any of us because we have no merit to bring before God. Uh, but before we were even birthed, before we had done anything good or bad, God set his eternal love upon us uh, to set us apart uh, to affect his purposes. And that's what he's about to do again in the nation of Israel in setting them free from the Babylonian captivity. Uh, the, uh, the next participle, which I think is quite uh, uh, instructive to me, in the 24th verse, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things. Uh, the text is literally, uh, I am the Lord doing all things. Uh, it touches a measure of the fullness of the sovereignty of God, uh, that nothing is too hard for him, that he is unstoppable in terms of what he wishes to do, and what he wishes not to do will, of course, not happen at all. Uh, it means, of course, that he is the ultimate cause of all things, that his will and his purposes are supreme. And again, the implicit contrast for us, the explicit contrast for the nation of Israel, is why in the world are you following your culture? Why are you following idols? Uh, why are you pursuing things which vacate uh, the most high God of heaven in light of who he is, is your redeemer and the one who forms you and the one who can do all things. Uh, I'm reminded in our own culture, we certainly work very hard at putting all types of limits upon what God can and cannot do. But the only thing that limits God uh, are his own perfections, his own internal perfections. Uh, and so it's true, as the text reads, that he can do all things. This is illustrated uh, for us uh, in that which is a very common theme in the prophet Isaiah, and that is uh, that God is the sole creator. Uh, and that is the next uh, two, uh, two participles, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. It's almost something of a picture that God pitches a tent. Uh, this earth is uh, the product. Uh, he spreads out the heavens by speaking them into existence. But what is critical for us to understand is uh, that which is the, what the text is quite clear on. He does it by himself. He says, by myself, and I do it all alone. God didn't form a committee. He didn't go hire civil engineers. Uh, he didn't go seek the counsel of wise men. No, he simply speaks. 
and the majesty and the power and the sovereignty of the word of God, uh, everything begins to obey and everything begins to happen because that's all God needs to do is but speak and the creation comes into existence. Uh, you and I can discover, we can manipulate, we can invent, we can assemble, but only God can create out of nothing. Again, the majesty of Scripture. Uh, the explicit contrast for Israel is that they go, they hire a blacksmith and he forms an idol. Uh, they hire a carpenter and he forms a block of wood. And yet, uh, the one true God simply speaks and he creates man in his own image. Uh, rather than a culture creating God in its image, the explicit reminder of the, of the magnitude of the grace and the mercies of God and his greatness. The particular interpretive point for Israel is that he is able to reconstitute the nation again out of the Babylonian captivity. He can reconstitute and create the nation again. That's why we have these great references to his divine creative ability. You know, by the way, in terms of applications, that's uh, true of your life as well. Uh, all, oftentimes, uh, we find ourselves in circumstances that we seemingly think that there's no way I can ever get out of this. And yet God is the creator, is he not? Uh, there's no circumstance that you could ever get in in your life that he could not rescue you from. I'm not suggesting he may not leave you there for a long period of time. That, of course, is something that is unknowable to me and part of the mystery of his providence. But it ought to be enough simply to hold fast to the promise that he is able and that if he is willing, he can, and that nothing is too hard for him. I, I was reminded of this uh, uh, when I uh, read... Uh, biography of uh, Louis Zamperini. Uh, perhaps you either read the book or saw the movie. Uh, Zamperini was an Olympic uh, athlete, uh, great track star, or surely a budding track star on the Olympic scene before the start of the Second World War. Uh, he becomes a, a crewman on a Air Force bomber, I think it was a B-24, but uh, certainly you're more than welcome to correct me if I'm errant. Uh, he's out on a search and rescue mission, and guess what? His own aircraft goes down, and uh, it's only three crewmen that survive, the pilot, Sam Perini, and another, another crewman on the aircraft. Tells a story of the aircraft going down that uh, he was surrounded uh, uh, by uh, wires, he couldn't extract himself. Makes the comment, but I, I thought, uh, I'm just simply going to drown. This is it for me. And then his next thought is he is being catapulted to the surface. It's an interesting thought, is it not? Uh, to be surrounded almost uh, as if uh, wires are wrapped around you and you have no ability whatsoever to extricate yourself. And so how is he made free? 
I mean, I don't know. Did God command angels to go rescue him? Did God simply speak and the wires uh, become untangled? I don't know how God did it, but I just simply know that Zamperini describes himself to be in a circumstance in which he is totally unable to extricate himself, and he's slowly drowning, and then he's being catapulted to the surface. Interesting. God's ability to set and rescue his own. Not that he always does that. He does things in his own way and for his own glory. But in this case, he still had a purpose for Zamperini to live. It's lost at sea. One of the longest periods of time uh, for uh, people to be lost at sea. Terrible circumstance. One of the crewmen, by the way, uh, when uh, (laughs) Zamperini and the pilot were asleep, uh, did something very unique and yet not unique. He ate all the food. Very difficult to be lost at sea with no food and no water and to know that one of your crewmen has hogged it all for himself. Great expression, is it not, of the selfishness. By the way, he was the first to die. Perhaps it's an implicit reminder uh, to learn to give and learn to give up. Uh, terrifying accounts of being lost at sea, particularly that sharks would try to breach the walls of the raft to drag them back into the ocean repeatedly. I don't know a great deal about sharks, even though sometimes having watched Shark Week, I think I'm an expert. But one thing I do know is that they have an incredible bite, uh, and that the foot pounds uh, per square inch are absolutely astronomical. I mean, you've seen the stories where a surfer, you can see the marks, whether it's simply a shark has bitten through the surfboard. So I'm thinking, so why didn't the sharks just bite through a canvas raft? Seems pretty simple to me. Well, I don't know. Maybe God just simply had a different purpose for Zamperini and commanded the sharks to do otherwise. And then, of course, as you know, is rescued by the Japanese, some rescue uh, uh, of all of uh, those who housed prisoners of war. They were the most cruel, uh, unimaginable the cruelty. One of the Japanese guards uh, took a particular delight in persecuting Zamperini because he was an Olympic track star. Uh, I don't know how he survived the countless beatings, except God had set him apart in his mother's womb to live and to survive for greater purposes. I'm just simply suggesting by this example of a man who suffers all of these terrible things and eventually goes on to become a Christian and engage in Christian ministry is that God is our creator. He saves us from being lost at sea. He saves us from sharks. He saves us from cruel masters. And he even saves us from ourselves exactly what he did in the life of Zamperini, and it's exactly what he does in our lives. May not break out in the same way, but the story will be told that God creates us and makes us for himself by his sovereign power. And nothing, absolutely nothing, can get in his way. From his uh, solitary perfections, 
Uh, Isaiah now begins to describe the greatness of God in his word. Uh, and he begins uh, uh, in a very negative way with the words of men. Verses 25 to 27, it begins with the words of men. Initial participle causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners and causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness. The ancient Near East, not unlike our own culture, uh, had its professional class of prognosticators, fortune tellers, and priests. Uh, they were often found in the courts of kings as advisors and constituted the Illuminati of their day. They were the, they were the PhDs of their day that everyone looked to. They would divine dreams, the movement of the stars, and my favorite, read sheep guts. And they would tell the future by reading, again, the entrails of uh, sheep that they killed. And what do you think they told Israel in captivity? You're slaves forever. Your God failed you and our gods are supreme and you'll never make it out of here alive. You're going to serve Marduk and the emperor of Babylon the rest of your days. And so forget about worshiping your God and lose any hope whatsoever that he will rescue you because he's already failed you. By the way, there's another emperor that said that uh, long ago and far away. His name was Pharaoh. And uh, he... He got in the way of God rescuing his people and God simply destroyed him, uh, which is exactly what God does to anyone who harms his people. And the entire account of all of the plagues upon Egypt is nothing more or less than God mocking the gods of Egypt at their expense to express his own solitary greatness. Pharaoh said, I'm not going to let you go. And guess what? He let them go. And when he changed his mind, God destroyed him in the Red Sea. Marvelous reminder of God's creative ability to take what is the most powerful men of the age and to reduce them to nothing. And that God is able to invalidate and frustrate their advice and, of course, annul all of their forecasts. It's a great illustration of this uh, in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 15, uh, verse 31. It's a part of uh, discipline that falls upon David. Interesting that you keep that in mind of what's about to happen. Uh, the kingdom of David is now tottering, and uh, his... Uh, Absalom has, has uh, been successful, seemingly so, in an insurrection. And David is being run out of town in great shame. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15 and the 31st verse, David gets some terrible news. One of his most important, intimate, skilled advisors has defected to the enemy. 
Someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. And Ahithophel knew David. He knew how he thought. He probably knew things that David would do before David even knew what he was going to do. And now he's defected to the enemy. And so what do you think? Can God rescue him? Can God make the wisdom of Ahithophel to be foolishness? Or is all lost? I thought about this in my own circumstances. Some of you are in the military. On occasion, your records go before a promotion board. Guess what? God is there. I'm not saying you're going to get promoted. I'm not saying anything other than the fact of what is true, that God is there. Some of you are involved in different types of careers or business enterprises or managing and running a home. Sometimes people sit and seemingly uh, they create the future for us. But nonetheless, God is there. God is in control. And that's what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 17, the 14th verse. Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Notice what the text reads. For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel in order that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. That in all of this terrible event of the insurrection, God was still in control. And even though Absalom was trying to push all the buttons of power, it was God who was at work setting in motion everything to protect David to ultimately install him back on the throne. And you know why? Because God made a covenant with David that he would be king. And even in light of the terrible things he had done, the covenant still stands in the word of God. I'm not dismissing the discipline that God affected upon him. Uh, I'm just simply establishing that when God makes a covenant, it's a covenant that's true and sure and will stand forever. And he made a covenant with us, the eternal covenant of redemption affected by Jesus Christ. And it's a covenant that God will stand true to because of his power. I'm not suggesting that uh, he won't discipline you or he won't engage himself in your life in terms of sanctification that sometimes won't be quite painful. I'm not suggesting any of that, only that when God makes a covenant, it's going to come true. And he's covenanted with David, and David's going to return to the throne. And he has covenanted with us by Jesus Christ to save us, to rescue us, and to enter us into heaven. The world might say otherwise, but the word of God will stand true. It's interesting that time and again, the Illuminati of Babylon tried to do away with Daniel. And time and again, God thwarted their plans and saved his prophet. In our own culture, scientists are forever prognosticating 
that we're going to run out of food, run out of oil, the ice caps are going to melt and we're all going to drown, the aliens are coming. You know, there was a, I saw this piece of news today that NASA is hiring someone to manage uh, the aliens. I, I probably had that all wrong, but it's a six-figure income. What all apply? What a great job. Because you know what? They aren't going to come and destroy us. You wouldn't have very much to do, but at least you'd have a six-figure income. Only the folly of the American government. And forgive me, I really almost never make political announcements, but I think that that's incredible. But it's almost as if everybody in America is scared to death because uh, I remember a number of years ago, ah, you're going to run out of oil. You better have more of this and more of that and stock up food and do this, do that. Well, guess what? We're awash in oil and coal. The ice caps melt melting. The polar bears drowning and destroyed because we got more polar bears today than we know what to do with. It's just simply the point of, of the world telling the church that your God is out of control. He cannot protect you. And therefore, we must trust and worship nature to protect us. Well, again, I'm all for being a good steward of nature, but it's not my God. It's the God of the earth dwellers. I belong to a different city. Remember when I was in college, a great prognosticator all over Time magazine, God is dead. I don't even remember his name. But my God lives. My hope is Easter. Don't get depressed when all of these people tell you that you're going to run out of food and that the aliens are going to come and uh, the new novel thing today is the robots are going to take over and we'll all lose our jobs. Because the robots are going to what? Fly airplanes and do everything that robots can do. And, and someday they'll get out of control and take over the world. Everybody's worried to death, save the Christian who knows it's all a bunch of bunk because our God rules. Our God is sovereign. Our God is in control. There's always some expert that becomes a cat's meow. It's always just for a season. Remember, a number of years ago, there was a brokerage house still around, but in a much, much diminished way. When E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. I bet most of you have never heard the name E.F. Hutton. These things come and go, but God is supreme and eternal. William F. Buckley once said, I'd rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the Boston phone book than the 2,000 people in the faculty of Harvard. Buckley, a professing Christian. His first book, God and Man at Yale, because Yale had defected from its original calling and vacated uh, their academic halls of uh, the God of Scripture. Psalm 33, verses 9 to 11. If you find yourself fearful of everything that the PhDs are telling what's going to happen to us, uh, the world seemingly is out of control and we have to rescue it. Psalm 33, verses 9 to 11. 
For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. That's our God. It is the divine and eternal purpose of God that will always win out and carry the day. In many cases, God is telling us not to listen to the so-called experts, uh, to hear his word, the greatness of his word. I remind you of our beginning lesson. All flesh is as grass. Man is like a flower in all of its beauty. And then summer comes and it sheds its bloom and it's gone forever. And so the prophet tells us the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You're going to base your life on a word. That's the word to base it upon. The words of men come and go. God controls tomorrow. It's a great illustration of this in the life of the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 6 and verse 28. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. What that verse is telling you, that Daniel came into the court of the emperor Nebuchadnezzar and he survived all of the Babylonian emperors until the invasion of Cyrus. He survived them all. They attempted to bring Daniel into the inner sanctum of the Illuminati of the court of the emperor uh, to forget his God, to erase every remembrance of his God, to forget the word of God. And yet, who proved successful by trusting the word of God? It was Daniel and all of the wise men, all the readers of sheep guts to a man have all since left the scene and Daniel is still around. It's a great reminder to trust God in his word rather than the words of men who come and go, who are on the scene like a meteor with great light, and then they're enveloped by darkness when God blows upon them. That Daniel is now in the court of the first Persian emperor because he survived all of the Babylonians. And so you tell me who was God, Marduk or the God of Scripture? The answer is self-evident. Our world has 10,000 gods. They're going to come and go, but our God is supreme in his greatness and solitary in his perfections. Well, what's the negative of... of uh, the greatness of, of God as it supplants the words of men. Let's look at the positive. Uh, verse 26, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. The text is literally, he causes his word to stand and brings to completion 
the words of his prophet. It's a creative word of God that once it is spoken, it cannot be stopped, and neither can its success be denied because it's the word of God. It is the measure of the greatness of the God that we serve. The text then reads of Isaiah, has God saying to Jerusalem, you will be rebuilt. And imagine that uh, in advance. Israel is going into the Babylonian captivity. Their great wise men are going to be carried away. Incredible destruction. The city of Jerusalem is going to be in ruins. But God says of that city, it'll be rebuilt. It will be repopulated. And it is, and it was. For us as Christians, it's a similar theology. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. It's a great lesson, as you know, contextually to walk by faith. By faith, Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 14. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. The city of God will supplant all of the cities of man. They will all be destroyed. They will all be erased. And the heavenly city of Jerusalem will rule and we will inhabit it as the people of God. It's a good reminder uh, that Abraham walked by faith as an alien. You and I are those aliens. We are aliens in a world which is foreign to us, but our hope is in the city which is yet to come. It will come out of heaven, destroy the earth, and the glory and the fullness of the greatness of God will cover the earth because that's a promise of the word of God. It's our sure and certain promise. To illustrate the power of the word, Isaiah then rehearses uh, for Israel different ways in which he has saved them. Verse 27, he says to the depth of the sea, be dried up and I'll make your rivers dry. It's a reminder of what? God's creative ability to save the nation from Pharaoh and his chariots. Moses lifts up his hands and the seas are parted and they walk on dry ground, dry ground to the other side. And then when Moses moves his hands, the waters of the sea envelop the chariots of Egypt and they're all destroyed. He creates dry ground for the safety and the rescue and the deliverance of his people. The same way when Joshua enters the land, the, the foot of the priest touches the river Jordan and the waters separate and the people cross. Who can do that but God, creating a passage of safety for his people? Great expression of that, as you know, in the 12th chapter of the book of the Revelation. 
The great dragon opens his mouth with a flood of the waters of deception to sweep away the church and destroy it. And John says the earth opens its mouth and swallows the waters of deception so the church can uh, be delivered. Miracle happened, the power of God every day. If it were not for the Spirit of God, the deceptive powers of the devil would sweep us all away. But God saves his people and rescues them in the power of his word, the greatness of his strength, the majesty of his power. Great expression of that in terms of creation uh, in the book of Genesis, eighth chapter. I love this text because uh, oftentimes, perhaps like you, think that, well, God, God's forgotten. Uh, God's forgotten me, and things aren't going to work out, and uh, I'll just never make it. Uh, Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, but God remembered Noah. Well, of course, it's a figure of speech. God cannot forget anything, much less uh, Noah. And you know why God remembered Noah? Because he made a covenant with him. And God's covenants are sure and certain. And all the beasts and all the cattle were with him on the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. That's nothing but a parallel to Genesis chapter 1 of God speaking, and the earth is framed out of the seas, reminding us of the creative power of God to create for us safe passage to heaven and to sweep away any obstacle that would get in our way. The power of the word of God. In, in the case of Isaiah the prophet, uh, it's expressed in a particular way of God identifying uh, the agent that will affect restoration. Uh, identifies in verse 28, uh, Cyrus will fulfill the purposes of God. That God speaks and God names him because God controls the future. I mean, the prognosticators in America are even now trying to predict who the next president will be. Well, they can guess all they want. God knows and God will make it happen. And God affects uh, the resurrection of Cyrus to come upon the scene and to conquer uh, Babylon. Names him in advance. Because what? Because God controls the future. Because every one of your tomorrows is in the hands of God. Of course, the greater agent for us is the word of God that becomes incarnate. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God. And the word came and became incarnate to us in Jesus Christ. The incarnate word of God creating our salvation. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Christ creating his church, upholding all things by the word of his power. And that's why when you read in the newspaper that the ice caps are melting and aliens are coming and whatever it is, whatever calamity, whatever disaster, uh, whatever environmental event that's going to happen to destroy us all, 
I simply remind you that Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. And one thing is true, he will rescue his church and we will populate the heavenly city of Jerusalem because the word of God has so declared it. He says of his church, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. That Jesus is our every tomorrow. He saves his people, he rescues them, and nothing can get in his way from claiming them from all eternity. And so when you read all the sad news of the prognosticator or the thousands upon thousands of idols in the United States of America, vie for your attention and your affection. Remember who God is, what he's done, what he will do, and who he is in Jesus Christ. We'll come this morning to a fellowship with the eternal uh, word of God in Jesus Christ. Uh, we come to fellowship with him, to acknowledge him as our savior, our redeemer. Uh, we come to acknowledge that in him we have forgiveness of sin. There's a very simple scripture.